Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Today, we are right in the thick of the plot. Um, this is one of the most sort of clearly plot-centric, clearly recognizable structures in this otherwise very sprawling and messy kind of novel. Um, like, this is what it says on the tin, folks, the preliminary investigation. We are going to look at Dmitry Karamazov and what, whether or not he, in fact, killed his father, as we were sort of insinuating and hinting at in the, at the very end of the last section. Um, but as much as that would seem to insinuate that we're going to totally switch gears and end up talking about, like, oh, well, do, are we now reading a detective novel? Do we now have to pay attention to clues? Are we going to backtrack and talk about all of the little hints that Dostoevsky has been dropping? Yeah, we probably will talk about some of that stuff, but I kind of don't want to get bogged down in the plot details today. Um, obviously, you are welcome to track that down as much as you see fit, but that's honestly the easiest part of this section. Um, it's pretty easy to keep track of who's doing what and what you know, Dimitri was doing at any given time. Half of this stuff we've heard before. The revelations here, exciting and, and momentous though they may seem, really don't change that much as far as what Dostoevsky is doing is concerned. So on the one hand, I do want to touch on this stuff, I do want to talk about this as a sort of detective novel, and we will definitely get there, we'll honestly get there very, very soon. Um, but I also want to talk about sort of everything that's going on, the multiple layers that are taking place in this section, and how, and I sort of want to emphasize, if anything, that we stay away from looking at this as a detective novel, or looking at specifically the plot details, as tempting as that may be, because we are inclined to do that already. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Before we get underway with our discussion of exactly how the investigation transpires and how we're supposed to interpret this, I want to do something that we actually haven't done very much of. I want to talk about the characters. Because we get introduced to a bunch here, right at the outset, and we have already been introduced to a bunch of new characters over the past couple of, of sections. Like, Dostoevsky has not been shy about introducing wild new characters out of the blue that are apparently, like, part of this town and have pre-existing relationships to the other characters. Um, it's real easy to get distracted and kind of lost in the minutia here. So, first and foremost, I want to set down... Who are our characters? Who are our investigators? How do they relate to Dmitri? What are their characteristics as they are introduced to us by Dostoevsky? What do we need to watch for as far as their behavior is concerned? Um, and I want to start actually with not one of the investigators, but Pyotr Ilyich. Uh, we've met him before. In fact, two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, Mitya's wild dash through the Russian countryside and getting confused with Leah Gavi and Samsonov and company. Uh, Pyotr Ilyich was the guy who he went to to pawn his pistols, and then he went back to him to get his pistols back, presumably so he would commit suicide, and when he did this, he came back covered in blood, and Pyotr Ilyich asked him about it. And we even got another chapter, which we discussed last time, about Pyotr Ilyich banging on the door of Grushenka's house, trying to sort of wake everybody up, because he had suddenly sort of become aware that, A this might actually mean that Dmitri has killed his father, as he's been threatening to all this time. Um, Pyotr Ilyich doesn't 
factor into this section very much, except in the first chapter where sort of we sort of see him trying to get people to pay attention to what's going on now that he thinks that a crime has been committed. Um, and sort of hilariously, as much as he's been presented to us as, as the instigator of the investigation about Dimitri, this kind of turns out to be false. Um, instead, we see him first hanging around at Grushenka's, and then he, for some reason, well, he does go over to Fyodor's to try and figure out what's going on, but he gets, like, cold feet. He doesn't want to start banging on the door and cause a scandal. This is precisely the thing he wants to avoid. No scandal for Pyotr Ilyich. Um, and as a consequence, instead, he goes and knocks on the door of a widow, which, you know, apparently won't cause a scandal. I, he goes to talk to Madame Koklikov because he wants to to establish whether or not Dmitri did in fact get money from her, because when Pyotr Ilyich asked Dmitri where he got the money from, Dmitri's answer was, I got it from Madame Koklikov. So he asked Madame Koklikov, and Madame Koklikov no, says no, never gave him that money. And for some reason, despite all this, this is actually kind of burying the lead, because actually Pyotr Ilyich and Madame Koklikov in true Madame Koklikov fashion, completely missed the point, end up having a very friendly conversation, and Madame Koklikov is very impressed with Pyotr Ilyich, and we're even told by the narrator that she's going to, like, kickstart Pyotr Ilyich's career or something, which I don't think is anything the novel actually follows, follows up on, in case you were wondering about the exciting adventures of Pyotr Ilyich after this. Um, and in fact, when Pyotr Ilyich remembers that he's supposed to be alerting the police because there is potentially a murderer and a parasite on the loose, when he finally does, in fact, knock on the door of the, the you know, police commissioner, they already know what's happened, because they were in, informed by Maria Ignatievna, uh, Grigory's wife, so already things are underway. So Pyotr Ilyich is kind of totally unnecessary here, and the fact that Dostoevsky follows him around sort of drives home how comical the whole proceeding actually is. Like, this is not supposed to be taken as, you know, serious, gritty, like, Breaking Bad or HBO special style, you know, police procedural here. This is not The Wire. Um, or if it is, it's because The Wire 2 did not take itself too terribly seriously. Um, this is still comedy. As much as there are a bunch of dead bodies hanging around, and as much as Mitya is experiencing this radical life change and, you know, total redemption and so on and so forth, Dostoevsky does not consider this subject above let's make fun of Pyotr Ilyich and let's take a couple of pot shots at Madame Koklikov's expense and let's tell a few jokes and show a few character beats here. Um, so... You know, as much as Pyotr Ilyich has nothing to do with what happens, things that have nothing to do with what happens may very well be just as important to this story as the stuff that is really plot-relevant. So consider that reminder number one, that we are not reading a Sherlock Holmes story and should not take it as such. Uh, reminder number two deals with our characters when we do, in fact, get the inspection team up and moving. Um, we have three characters here. The first that we're introduced to is Mikhail Makarovich Makarov, who, I'm not sure if the name is just weirdly alliterative or what the deal is here. Makarovich Makarov does seem a little weird even by Russian standards, but I'm not sure if Dostoevsky is playing games. He often does with his naming, as we've talked about. Like, even Karamazov means, like, stained. Um, suffice it to say, he's the least important of the bunch, despite being the most notable. Like, he is a retired colonel from the army who has transferred his credit over to civilian life and become a, uh, what is it, a state counselor, um, which is like the 
sort of civil ranking that corresponds to the colonel in the military. Um, he is the district commissioner of the police. I, he, he's a bigwig. He's a noble person. Um, but as much as this sounds very impressive, honestly, it probably has as much to do with, like, a county sheriff um, in a contemporary American circles. Like, yeah, the buck stops with them, but they really only have, like, three or four cops governing a wide area. They are elected, but, you know, they're not, like, terribly rich or powerful or anything like that. It is open to abuses of authority, and we should not forget that Makar Makarovich, or uh, Mikhail Makarovich, is in fact a nobleman, like that is significant to his role and what's to come, um, especially when the Poles start like kowtowing to him. Um, but nonetheless, Mikhail Makarovich is kind of there to lend prestige. The real players, as far as the investigation is concerned, are the two that follow. Ippolit Kirillovich, who we don't actually get a family name for him. He's just Ippolit Kirillovich. That's, that's all we're ever going to know. He is our deputy prosecutor. And notice he is the deputy, but everybody just refers to him as the prosecutor. If there is, in fact, like a county prosecutor, or, you know, whatever the equivalent would be here in this province of Russia, he's not showing up, presumably because he is a rich bigwig who doesn't actually do anything, and, you know, like Mikhail Makarovich is sort of leaning on his his honors rather than actually performing his duties. Um, Ippoli Kirillovich, however, is, being des is described here as being very professional and very capable. Um, he is our psychologist, and he is the one who very much sort of leads and guides the actual interrogation process. He is the one who exchanges, exchanges the most questions with Dimitri, even if they're not the ones that tend to be the most memorable. Um, he is quiet, calculating. He is capable. Um, you'll also notice he is the most dignified of the ones who interrogate Dimitri, which we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, suffice it to say that we've seen a character like this before in Dostoevsky's work. Namely, he is probably as close as we're going to get uh, to Porfiry Petrovich, the famous investigator who, you know, sort of dogs Raskolnikov with his almost supernatural psychological insight. Um, Ippoli Kirillovich definitely does not have the sort of depth as Porfiry Petrovich does in that novel. Again, he's only here for a couple of chapters. Um, but nonetheless, we're sort of given to, to look at his interrogation method as being indicative of more depth than he originally betrays. He is trying to understand Dmitry Karamazov, the man, and not necessarily get bogged down in little details and, and you know, fiddly evidence and stuff like that. Um, that role belongs to Nikolai Parfar Parfenovich. Is it Parfenovich? Uh, Nikolai Parfenovich Neludov, um, who is our district attorney, apparently. Which, as much as we think of that as being, again, a, a sort of role with a certain amount of dignity attached to it, it's very much emphasized here that, that Nikolai Parfenovich is actually kind of a neophyte. He's very young. Um, he looks up to Ippoli Kirillovich as well as Mikhail Makarovich. He lacks the sort of noble standing that his, his two betters have. Um, and it's emphasized as well that he and Dmitri are actually on really good terms, usually. Um, like, they've hung out. And in fact, uh, Dostoevsky emphasizes that when they do hang out, it tends to be sort of body conversations about about 
women and about like life in the military and other things like that. Um, so keep in mind, the two of them are kind of on even keel normally. So this reversal, the, the fact that you know now Dmitri is in trouble and now Nikolai uh, Parfenovich has this power over him, um, this is new. And, and significant for the interaction between these two characters. Um, so it's also significant because Nikolai Parfenovich is the outsider as far as Mavrikin Makarovich and Ippoli Kirillovich are concerned as well. Um, he is the outsider. He is the newbie. He is, you know, the rookie detective who is still wet behind the ears and is making mistakes and, you know, is a little clumsy. Uh, but at the same time, Dostoevsky emphasizes here that that's kind of also his superpower. Um, his ability, as he describes, is catching people off guard. So if we look on page 453, that first big paragraph, physically he was short and of weak, delicate constitution. Several extremely large rings always flashed on his thin and pale fingers. When performing his duties, he became remarkably solemn, as though he conceived of his significance and responsibility as sacred. He was especially good at throwing murderers and other low-class criminals off guard in interrogations, and actually aroused in them, if not respect for himself, at least a certain astonishment. So he is, in addition to being kind of wet behind the ears and inexperienced, he is also the wild card here. Um, he throws people off their guard. He's got those big gaudy uh, rings that even like Dimitri is distracted by multiple times during the interrogation. Um, and, and it's kind of hard to say whether that's intentional or unintentional, whether this is good or bad. There are a couple of times when Ippoli Kirillovich sort of reins Nikolai Parfenovich in, like, dude, back off. We've got him where we want him and we don't want to you know, push him any farther. Um, but it's also not entirely clear whether or not what Nikolai Parfenovich is doing is intentional or unintentional, beneficial or actually detrimental to the investigation at large. Um, so here are our three characters. We've got Nikhail Makarovich, who will spend most of this section downstairs with the women, um, keeping them, keeping Grushenko from like busting into the room after she initially disturbs the proceedings, um, and basically just being the face of this investigation, as well as sort of keeping the witnesses in check. Um, we've got Ippoli Kirillovich, who is very much in charge of the actual interrogation process, as as Dmitri is sort of like questioned and investigated. And we've got Nikolai Parfenovich, who is our loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules. Except not really. Like, again, the tropes here aren't exactly one for one. Uh, but that is very much where I want to start today. Um, now that we've got our characters out of the way, let's talk about this section as a detective novel, as a police procedural, as sort of prefiguring a very familiar style that we in the 20th and 21st century should know immediately. And I want to emphasize this for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, I want to stress the Dostoevsky is doing a lot of stuff that we're going to see from police procedurals that are going to be sort of staples of detective novels. Like, it's real easy to sort of translate Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich into a buddy cop scenario. You know, just like I was saying, sort of joking, Nikolai Parfenovich is a loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules. You know, that's a trope for a reason. Like, Dostoevsky is kind of playing with this idea even before it is, in fact, a trope. To just sort of, like, locate this chronologically, 
the Brothers Karamazov was published in 1880. Like, that's when it was actually finished. Dostoevsky had been working on it for several years, uh, releasing it in installments and various periodicals. In all likelihood, he, it's probably, like, this section was probably written and, and sort of published in, uh, in 1879 or 1878, perhaps even earlier. Um, it's set in the 1860s, we should remark. Like, this is already historical fiction, but, you know, recent history, sort of comparable to, like, somebody writing about the 90s today. Um, but as far as the actual tradition of detective literature is concerned, Dostoevsky prefigures most of it. Um, most people point to, as we've talked about a little bit before, Auguste Dupin, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's detective character, as being sort of the progenitor of the detective novel and the detective fiction traditionally. Um, and he was writing in the 1840s. In all likelihood, Dostoevsky knew of Poe, but probably hadn't read him. Um, again, Dostoevsky, especially in the 1840s and 50s, was kind of busy being arrested and exiled uh, for a lot of the time that Poe would have been current in contemporary European circles, much less Russian circles entirely. Um, chances are he would have bumped into Poe at one point, probably through other European writers more recent than Poe, um, but in all likelihood he had not read the DuPont stories. Uh, likewise, this is before Sherlock Holmes. The first Sherlock Holmes story doesn't appear in The Strand until 1891, and P.S. the purloined letter is, or rather, <laughs> a scandal in, uh, in Bohemia is totally a ripoff of Poe's The Purloined Letter, like perhaps one of the most famous Sherlock Holmes stories is totally just stolen from Poe. Um, not to, you know, badmouth Doyle or Sherlock Holmes. I do love Sherlock Holmes. But nonetheless, we should notice it is after Dostoevsky has published this novel, considerably after, like a decade after. Um, there have been detectives in literature for a while at this point. Um, notably, the one that Dostoevsky probably would have interacted with the most um, is the detective character in Dickens's Bleak House. Um, but none, nonetheless, we kind of need to put this whole discussion in more context. Police were kind of not a thing uh, when Dostoevsky is writing this novel. Like, the sort of urban police department in Victorian England really was sort of starting and getting kicked off in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. And this idea was kicking around Europe at the same time. So by the time that we get to Dostoevsky, yeah, there are in fact police forces in some form or another, investigators and, and you know, police commissioners like we see here um, in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, but the literature surrounding them really doesn't exist at this point. What seems more likely is that Dostoevsky is actually relying on real factual police reports. Um, as well as his own personal experience here. Like I said, Dostoevsky spent the better part of the 1850s in prison and in exile. Um, he was in Siberia. This is because, as part of the Petrushevsky circle, um, he was picked up by the cops when they raided the place, and he was arrested and accused of basically engaging in treasonous and revolutionary activities. Um, it even got to the point that he spent, you know, five, six months in jail before was, he was trotted out, supposedly to be executed, but it turns out that Nikolai I, I want to say... Um, Nikolai I was actually putting on a giant show to sort of indicate how clement and merciful he was, and Dostoevsky was, like, theatrically pardoned at the last minute. 
Um, it's an important detail for a lot of his other writings, not so much for the Brothers Karamazov, but in The Idiot and in Crime and Punishment especially, Dostoevsky draws very heavily from that experience. Um, for our purposes, though, it's worth noticing he was arrested and he was processed in the, in the late 1840s into the 1850s. Um, he knew from the inside what the penal system in Russia looked like. And what's more, he never lost his interest for this. Um, the writer's diary is filled with examples of Dostoevsky sort of looking at crime in Russia at this point in time, both peasant criminals and noble criminals. He is fascinated by the, the actions of, of uh, various sort of Russian revolutionaries and the trials that surround them. Um, the Devils is, again, sort of a ripped-from-the-headlines kind of story in that respect. Um, so most of the details that he draws from here, all of the focus on evidence, all of the sort of psychological examination here and in Crime and Punishment, are likely a combination of his personal experience with the sort of penal system, with investigators and, and various officials sort of acting in a police role, as well as his examination of like actual reports of actual crime, um, people writing about this stuff in the 1860s and the 1870s especially. Um, so he's not working from tropes. That's one of the things that I really want to drive home here, and he's, as much as we read this and sort of recognize so much of the interrogation between Ippolyte Kirillovich and Dmitry Karamazov, we sort of are inclined to read it the same way that we would watch an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or the way that we would watch an episode of Law and Order, or the way that we might read an Agatha Christie novel. You know, we've seen this set up so many times in the last 100, 150 years, that it's worth taking a step back and remarking that Dostoevsky is on the one hand perhaps inventing some of these tropes, and on the other hand, we're reading our experience into this. See, one of the things that I stumbled across, I've been reading the, if it isn't really obvious by all of a sudden there are all of these references to Dostoevsky's personal biography. I am on spring break this week, and I am celebrating as I usually do by reading Dostoevsky. Except that I'm already reading Dostoevsky, so I'm kind of going the backdoor route on this one. And I've picked up the second volume of Joseph Frank's four-volume bi biography on Dostoevsky, which is the story of the 1850s and him being in prison and in exile, um, which is especially relevant to this particular section, because, again, he would like a lot of the stuff that Joseph Frank is talking about with respect to Dostoevsky's interactions with the penal system clearly come up here. Um, but importantly... Frank is very much making a, an argument that in the Brothers Karamazov and in many of the other sorts of writings that Dostoevsky has on the subject, that Dostoevsky is sort of exposing and pointing to the problems in the Russian penal system. Um, and in fact, all of this focus on evidence, all of this emphasis on, on sort of material clues, the things that we read as being very typical of the detective genre, of the police procedural, the fact that we too get really excited when Ippoli Kirillovich points out that, oh, this only adds up to 1,500 rubles, and we're like, oh! It's a huge clue. This is this major breakthrough. And on the other, on the one hand, Dostoevsky is also on the same page. He's like, yes, this is a major breakthrough. This is this huge clue. Obviously, everybody is really impressed by this information. Um, but on the other hand, Frank is arguing that Dostoevsky is, if anything, exaggerating this for effect. Um, this isn't as important a detail as we might seem to think. 
And in fact, Dostoevsky is arguing instead that if they had just paid attention to Dmitri's demeanor, his character, his psychology, they would have recognized immediately that this guy is innocent. I don't know if that's a good reading. Like, much as I love Joseph Frank, and much as I am absolutely enjoying his reading of Dostoevsky, and nine times out of ten I am totally on the same page as him, this is one place where I think it's a little more complicated than this. I think Dostoevsky is writing a detective novel, and I also think that Dostoevsky isn't writing a detective novel. And if you're wondering how these could possibly be the same thing, well... Dostoevsky is always writing multiple novels at the same time. He is always working on multiple levels, multiple valences, multiple layers. Um, we've seen it at other times in this novel, and we should definitely be paying, sort of keeping this idea at the forefront of our mind right now. On the one hand, this definitely does read like a potboiler. It reads like a page-turner. It reads like any of a number of popular novels that might have been current in England or in France at this point in time. Um, and it definitely does remind us of a lot of the structure and a lot of the style and a lot of the plot points and a lot of the development that we might see in a Sherlock Holmes novel or that we might find in Agatha Christie or that we might see in Philip Marlowe or any number of things in even more recent time now that this sort of interrogation scene has become so commonplace and its tropes are so familiar. Um, what Dostoevsky is doing here isn't that. And I want to stress that. He is not following these tropes, and we should not read them as tropes. We should recognize that this is brand new material. But the question then becomes, is he deliberately creating this structure, a structure that will in fact look remarkably similar to structures that we abide by now, or is this an accident? Is he in fact doing this for other purposes? Is he in fact, as Frank is suggesting, emphasizing and showing to us the failures in the penal system in the way that the police are going about their business, rather than showing us the sort of methodical, um, carefully articulated, you know, what, drama of a police interrogation. Um, and the fact of the matter is, I think both are happening. I think Dostoevsky is very clearly trading on the suspense, on the, the plot elements here. If he wasn't, we wouldn't have gotten all of those really important, like, mic drop moments in the last couple of chapters where, you know, Dostoevsky emphasizes, like, Mikhail, or Dmitri has gone to, you know, to, like, his friend Pyotr Ilyusha to, you know, pawn his pistols because he doesn't have a ruble to his name, this is important and people are going to, you know, pick up on this later. Like, the fact that he very much stops the flow of the narrative to say, hey, everyone, pay attention, this is important, everyone's going to pay attention to this, everybody's going to see this as, as really significant. On the one hand, it's really hard to see that as anything but him sort of building suspense, building drama. On the other hand, Frank has a point. He is flagging this specifically because, and specifically as, you know, explicitly said in the text, people are, are going to pick up on this. Not that we should pick up on this. Not that we are the ones who are supposed to be like, aha, a clue! But rather, other people are going to pick up on this and say, aha, a clue, and we are supposed to distance ourselves from them. Both interpretations seem pretty valid here. And I think the, the great insight of Frank here 
Um, and the one that the sort of insight that I do want to drive home, even if I don't agree with Frank 100%, is that we should be cautious. We should not jump to the conclusion that this is what we expect it to be. You know, the same thing that we would expect from Agatha Christie doing this, or the same thing that we would expect from this happening on Dragnet. Um, we need to recognize that Dostoevsky, at the very least, may have other intentions in mind, and could perhaps have a completely different goal behind what he is doing, the things that he is flagging here. Um, so notice, when we do in fact get into the interrogation, much of the emphasis is on these circumstantial evidences, as we might call them. Um, Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich both very much get very excited when Dmitri, you know, drops a hint that, you know, yes, in fact, I did tell the Poles that I had 3,000 rubles and I would have paid 3,000 rubles for Grushenka. Or they both get very excited when all of these witnesses point out, oh, yes, he said, you know, 3,000 rubles the last time and 3,000 rubles this time for 6,000 rubles. And, like, we even get this remark from Dostoevsky that, like, uh, Ippoli Kirillovich is, you know, super excited about this. Like, yes, 3 plus 3 equals 6. And on the one hand, yeah, it reads like this idiot prosecutor idiotically, you know, picking up on this pointless detail, you know, and getting very excited about it because it is so quotable, so so sort of like manifestly tangible. But on the other hand, no, it is really good evidence. Like, Dimitri has to fight his way out from some really dumb things that he's said over the course of these various uh, chapters. Um, so on the one hand, yes, Clues are important to Dostoevsky. On the other hand, no, clues are not important to Dostoevsky. Um, they are important because they do sort of give us a picture of where Dmitri is at. An incomplete picture, admittedly, a picture that kind of leaves us asking questions, wondering exactly if Dmitri is guilty or is innocent. But on the other hand, Dostoevsky is sort of drawing attention to the fact that the government, the representatives of the Russian police force, insofar as it exists, are very concerned with these evidences and not at all concerned with the fact that Dmitri is a person who cares about his honor, who cares about his dignity, who is offended on multiple occasions during this interrogation, and who, at the end of the day, does draw a very close line between, yes, I said this, and yes, I will give this, this evidence against myself, and I wouldn't lie to you about X, Y, and Z, so therefore, when, in fact, Dimitri says, I didn't kill my father, that means something. So let's back up, because I suspect that I'm rambling and not actually getting anywhere in, as far as like actually like illuminating what's, what's happening here in Dostoevsky. We read, again, the sort of default state that we in the 21st century are likely to approach is let's read this like a typical interrogation scene. Let's read the evidence as being super important, because that's what we're trained to do. Uh, when we pick up a Sherlock Holmes story or an Agatha Christie novel or whatever, we are trained to look for clues, to hunt for evidence, to sort of recognize, you know, what are the alibis? Does this character's testimony line up? You know, did this prosecutor ensnare the, the potential criminal into a trap? Um, like, this is classic stuff. Like, um, one of my favorite essays on the whole detective genre as a whole is Raymond Chandler's The Simple Art of the Art of Murder. 
um, where he sort of illuminates the difference between the British detective novel and the American uh, noir detective novel. Um, and importantly for Chandler, the, the sort of key to the entire understanding of British detective novels in general is that they are supposed to be puzzles. Um, they're not necessarily solvable puzzles. Frequently, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Poirot or whoever the detective is has information that we, the audience, just do not have access to. Uh, like Sherlock Holmes magically solves this thing because he noticed there was this stain on the, the guy's sleeve and that, that was clearly an indication of, you know, X, Y, Z. But we, the audience, are hearing about this for the first time. Um, on the other hand, despite this... Because the tradition of supernatural detectives with like all this secret information the audience doesn't get is sort of mixed up with the tradition of uh, detectives who are, in fact, you know, like dropping clues, giving us all of the information we need to solve the puzzle. Um, we crave that information. We look for those little details. We look for the holes in the stories. Um, so, for example, like I was playing. Uh, Call of Juarez Gunslinger, um, and there was this particularly great moment where uh, the the main character has been narrating his his story this entire time, and one of the the listeners actually provides the surname for one of the characters that the narrator describes unprompted, and this is you know subtle in the game, but it's one of those perfect examples of a clue to this person's identity, to the, the sort of development of the plot and, and who this person actually is um, that the storyteller is talking to. This is a classic trap. Uh, this is always a trope in detective literature, that, like, the police detective, you know, s says, like, I, I did, in fact, tell you that his name was Joe, but I never told you that it was Joe Smith. And it's like, oh, snap, that guy's totally wrecked. Um, like, this is a huge plot point in Minority Report. This is a huge plot point in tons of Law and Order episodes. Like, you name it. Some, if you were doing the detective novel thing, sort of like trying to feed your audience clues, this is a classic example of, you know, how you do that, how you give them information, how you, you know, let the audience feel really smart for having figured out something um, that was not, in fact, on display, that the audience, you know, could have potentially missed. You get to feel like a genius because you figured it out before the detective did. Good for you. Um, and on the one hand... It's tempting to say, okay, so Dostoevsky is kind of doing this. Like, he did definitely flag all those evidences beforehand, but he does so really dramatically. So we're clearly not in blink and you'll miss it, feel really smart if you catch it territory, as far as the actual detective structure is concerned here. But on the other hand, we are given at least one bit of really important plot evidence that becomes super relevant in this discussion that the detectives, in fact, don't have i.e. it's reversed, where the detective picks up on this in really important detail but doesn't say anything to, you know, see if he can trap this person into, into making bigger mistakes. Again, a ploy that obviously Ippolit Kirillovich and Nikolai Parvenovich are engaging in. Like, Ippolit Kirillovich definitely lets and encourages Dmitri to damn himself. He restrains Nikolai Parfenovich specifically because he wants Dmitri to, you know, say something incriminating about himself. They are looking for that evidence, and they don't find it. Ironically, for us, the audience, we were given an evidence that Nikolai Parfenovich and Ippolit Kirillovich can't have. Namely, we know about the amulet. 
sort of. So we get this detail, like it is this really important plot detail. This is, you know, Mitya's great secret. The chapter is literally named after this revelation. Um, but when they ask him, okay, so where did you get the 1,500 rubles? Like, obviously it's this big deal. You were penniless. Now you have all this money and you're throwing around in the spree. You know, here is the envelope that Fyodor Pavlovich had and it's been ripped open and all the money's been stolen. And Dimitri's like, oh, crap. Like, no, I didn't take that money. I didn't even know it was under the pillow. And they're like, but you said it was under the pillow. And he's like, well, I guessed that it was under the pillow. Like, it's this whole back and forth. They think they've trapped him when they, in fact, haven't. But on the other hand, when Dimitri presents his evidence, oh, actually, when I got the original 3,000 rubles from Katerina Ivanovna, I took half of it and put it in this amulet. Like, I sewed it into a rag, and I hung the rag around my neck, and I've been keeping that rag there for apparently weeks, if not months, without touching it. Even in this state of destitution, even when I was borrowing five or ten rubles or pawning off my prized possessions to keep myself so I could go out and find this Samsonov character, I refused to open the amulet. And as much as this comes as a surprise to us, if you're reading closely, back when Dimitri bumped into Alyosha for the final time, when, you know, Alyosha is on his way back to the monastery, there is this moment where, you know, Alyosha asks Dimitri what he's going to do, whether he's going, how desperate he actually is, and Dimitri emphasizes, no, I'm not that desperate yet, and he bangs himself. Alyosha notices this, the narrator notices this, somehow significantly he, like, bangs himself on the chest, presumably where the amulet would have been located. So we did get a hint. We, the audience, if you were watching closely, are rewarded. Good for you. You're really smart. Like, way to notice that Dimitri is hiding something on his chest. And this is obviously, again, something that Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich don't have access to, because at this point, it's already torn off, and they even get into the, well, do you, where did the rag come from? Where did the thread come from? And Dimitri's like, dude, it's gone. Like, it's already lost. There's no way you're ever going to find it. It was just some crappy rag. It's probably being swept up in the street even as we speak. And I wouldn't even be able to recognize it if you pointed it out to me. Like, stop harping on this, Dimitri emphasizes. But notice that this is kind of, on the one hand, truth, and on the one hand, a lie. On the one hand, Dimitri is right to be upset about this. Dimitri is right that, to be impatient. Like, where did I get the, the needle and the thread from? Where did I get the rag from? How can this possibly be relevant to your investigation? To Frank's point, this is totally irrelevant. How could this possibly make the detectives, the, the prosecutor and the district attorney, any more convinced of the truth of what Dimitri is saying? Of course he had needle and thread. Of course he knows how to sew. Of course he can just get a rag from anywhere. Like, they're being unreasonable in their expectations about this evidence. They're being unreasonable in expecting Dimitri to remember these absolute trifles. And yeah, it's pointless. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. And it is, as Frank is pointing out, kind of ridiculous that the Russian investigators and that in fact, detectives and investigators altogether are consumed with this interest in petty material evidence in the grand Sherlock Holmes style while ignoring the character of the person who is in fact on display here. But on the other hand, it's that exact same piece of evidence that provides the audience with their aha moment. I don't know if this is intentional on Dostoevsky's part. 
Maybe it is just literary foreshadowing as far as he's concerned. Or maybe it is just, you know, something that he wrote in after the fact, although that's kind of hard to believe based on the fact that this was in all likelihood published episodically, that somehow meaningfully beat his chest line doesn't make any friggin' sense unless he had already planned out beforehand and made this into a significant detail, the fact that he had, in fact, sewed all this money onto his chest, that Dostoevsky knew this, had plotted it carefully beforehand, and had drawn attention to it specifically with the idea that it would be important to the audience later. Dostoevsky is sowing seeds of classic detective novel structure here, even if this is before the classic detective novel is a thing. He knows how to play his audience in that sense. It's why he drew all of this attention to the fact that, like, Dimitri is standing before the window, and Fyodor puts his head out of the window, and then dot, 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 dot. And now we see Dimitri running away. Like, obviously, Dostoevsky is interested in the elements of suspense here. He wants us to be reading this the way that we read a detective novel, even if that's not a thing right now. But on the other hand... It is true that it's ridiculous, that this evidence is immaterial, that it's stupid and pointless, that Ippolit Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich are obsessed with minutiae that don't matter and ignoring the elephant in the room, namely who is Dmitri, what is he like? So I want to sort of recognize this, the tension here. I want to recognize that Dostoevsky is, to some degree, trying to have his cake and eat it too. He is giving us a procedurally told, methodically interesting, plot-heavy story about Dmitri and whether or not he murdered his father. I do think Dostoevsky wants us to come away from this chapter thinking to ourselves, did Dmitri actually do it? I think that there are supposed to be members of the audience that are honestly unsure, both at the end of the last section before we get into the investigation and now. At the end of the investigation, when Dmitri has in fact professed his innocence and all of the evidence stands against him. I don't think we are meant to read this purely as a social document, but I do think that that is an element, and we will talk about that in a moment. So I want to sort of, like, point at this. At least raise the question. Make sure that it is known that it is not quite so simple. I think Dostoevsky is criticizing the police to some degree, but at the same time, I think he is very generous to both Ippolit Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich as characters. They're not buffoons. They're not ridiculous. If anything, Dostoevsky is criticizing the system. And if he is criticizing the system, it is on a social level. He is emphasizing, you know, our trials, our... Uh, judicial system is obsessed with these material evidences, is obsessed with all of these, you know, like, was the door open or was the door closed? How could, you know, how could Fyodor not have killed his father if, in fact, the door was open when, in, when uh, the prosecutor and the, the investigator showed up at the house? Who opened it then, Dimitri? And Dimitri's like, oh, well, I wasn't there. Um, but this sort of evidence could be explained in other ways. Maybe Fyodor opened the door, maybe there was in fact another murderer, maybe other people could have opened the door who murdered them, like, who knows? Why are they obsessed with this, and why are they following up on this particular point with the person who claims not to know anything about it? Like, Dimitri is going to tell them the truth. Yes, I claim to kill my father. Yes, I told everybody who would listen that I would murder him. Yes, I got this money from this, you know unknown source and no, I'm not willing to talk about it because it makes me out to be such a scoundrel, and then ultimately question him when he in fact says, you know, 
yes, I did this and it absolutely incriminates myself. Yes, I did this and it was stupid and I don't have a reason for it. But no, I didn't kill my father. Somehow this should be raising red flags. Like, this is what Dostoevsky wants to drive home most clearly, I think. Whatever is going on with Dmitri, even if we walk away sort of wondering to ourselves, who is this person? Did he in fact murder his father? Is this in fact the right way to go about investigating? I think what Dostoevsky wants, wants us to sort of zero in on here is that that's the question. His character is the question. Um, as much as Dostoevsky is sort of a master of characters in a wide variety of people, um, again, while he was in prison, he interacted with tons of people with various criminal records, both you know innocent people accused of things that they were not guilty of, people who had committed a crime out of passion or necessity, as well as inveterate, horrible people for various reasons. Um, he mentions in uh, uh, The House of the Dead, and Frank sort of emphasizes as well in the biography, that one of the... the, the person who Dostoevsky is honestly the most critical of, who he considers the most sort of relentlessly criminal person, is not a murderer. Like, there is an itinerant murderer there, somebody who has killed lots of people, and while Dostoevsky is very wary of him, he is, to some degree, more honest than this noble person who literally informed incorrectly on people to the censors and to the uh, Russian government in order to get for himself money informed on them for the bounty, despite the fact that they had not, in fact, committed any crime. Dostoevsky's like, that guy is the worst, the most immoral person here. Never mind the peasants who murdered other peasants, or the peasants who murdered their, their landowners, or the peasants who, you know, have killed multiple people over a long career of violence. They had their reasons. This guy was the worst. And on some level, I think what Dostoevsky is emphasizing here with Dmitri is that Dmitri is not this kind of person. Maybe even he was a parasite. We are definitely urged to sort of ask ourselves that question. But at the end of the day, what is the morality that drives Dmitri? He is not an immoral person. Or at least we are not given any indication that he is. He rejoices when he's told that Grigory is in fact alive. He absolutely obsesses over whether or not he is a thief and a scoundrel. Are we really supposed to stop and say, and say, well, actually he is all of these things, but he is also lying about murdering his father? That's where we're supposed to have pause. That's where we're supposed to sort of ask questions. And that brings us to the sort of second lens by which we need to interpret this chapter. We need to recognize that, again, Dostoevsky is a social writer, and this is a social novel, and this is a social chapter. As much as Dostoevsky is sort of leading us on this complicated, you know, tour of evidence and mystery and, you know, who done it and did he do it or did he not do it? Is Smerdyakov as guilty as Fyodor or as Dmitri now seems to think? Um, as much as we're sort of like on this roller coaster that we normally associate with like 20th century police procedurals and stuff, remember that at the end of the day, Dostoevsky's way less interested in that. And that is maybe just like a coat of paint on top of it, something that he's experimenting him with, on top of his much more normal interest, i.e., what is their psychology? And on that level, it's really interesting to sort of take a step back and look at these people, not as people, but as, not as sort of like plot, uh, and, or plot moments, like plot drivers, characters 
who are here only to move the plot along. We need to remember that these characters have a history together, that they have interactions, that Ippoli Kirillovich is not just a trope. He is not just the prosecutor. He is not just, you know, the old hand at getting people to confess where Nikolai Parfenovich is our rookie loose cannon. Like, as much as we are so inclined to boil these down to very plot-driven tropes, Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing that these are people. Um, and their interactions with Dmitri are not supposed to be read as this sort of cat-and-mouse game of, you know, can we get him to, to spill his guts? Do we, in fact, follow the evidence to, to the logical conclusion, to the truth? But in addition, this is a game of people's psychology. And what I really want to stress here is that as far as Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich are very much tropey, classic sort of detective archetypes. You know, we have seen characters like this again and again and again in contemporary literature. Notice that Dimitri is not a normal victim. He is not a normal perpetrator. He is not a normal suspect. As much as the structure of this looks like a detective novel from the outset, from the sort of what are we talking about, how are we talking about it, Dimitri always reacts wrong. Notice that he is, for the most part, offended throughout this section. Which is something that, again, we, those of us who are familiar with the 20th century detective novel, probably stopped and, like, took a step back. Like, why is he acting like this? Notice that this is because the entire police system in Russia is very much in flux right now. You know, we sort of do not balk at 20th century detective uh, procedurals because we are so used to their prevalence in our lives and in film and in books and so on and so forth. You know, none of us sort of has questions about the detective ordering Mitya to conduct a strip search. But Mitya gets super offended by it. Like, they're, they're turning out his socks. And he's like, do you really think that I sewed the extra money into my socks? You know, do you really have to rifle through my undergarments? And, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're sort of like, wait, socks are undergarments now? But no, like, he's serious. These are his small clothes. They, these are his most intimate, you know, articles of clothing. You're not supposed to mess with them. Notice that Dimitri is, on the one hand, unfamiliar with this system, and on the other hand, he is not accepting this system. He does not just sort of back down and lie down to it. Now, some of this just may be Dimitri's character. I could very much be reading into this situation um, because Dimitri is a hothead. Um, we know that Dimitri is a hothead. We know that he is incredibly passionate. We know that he frequently flies off the handle at little offenses. You know, we've seen him, like, dragging Snegirov around by the beard. We've seen him practically beat his father to death over a perceived slight that really didn't have any basis in reality. Um, we saw him running all over Russia, you know, going to Samsonov, trying to find Leah, Leah Gavi on, you know, without even realizing that Samsonov had sort of pulled one over on him until now. Um, it would be easy for us to see this as Dmitri getting offended for no reason, but I think that Dostoevsky is in fact pointing to something more important here. You know, as much as, yes, there was a police system in England as far back as the 18th century to some in some form or another, that it, and it's only being standardized now here in the 1880s, um, as much as this is a normal thing in London and has been a thing for the better part of a generation, 
Russia is still slow. They are slow to sort of follow European traditions, and therefore chances are their police force is at least 20 years younger than the British police force. The system of penal, you know, interaction is relatively new, you know, even in Peter the Great's day when he's first in sort of uh, instituting courts and, and, you know, the sort of government that we normally associate with civilized nations, you know, this is way more recent than a lot of these other places that have had systems of laws in place for hundreds of years, um, dating back through the medieval world all the way back to Byzantium in some cases. Um, Dostoevsky is emphasizing that Dmitri hasn't gotten the memo. This is not how Dmitri understands the police to work. He doesn't expect this. He doesn't plan to be strip-searched. He doesn't expect that he's going to have this, you know, really confrontational interrogation, that they're going to ask him all these questions. On the one hand, he accepts it. And you'll notice that he, he sort of, like, resigns himself to this on some occasions. On the one hand, he, he stresses, you know, I didn't kill my father, but I said I would kill him, and I was just as wrong for saying it, and I was just as wrong for thinking it, and therefore I accept it. By all means, heap the shame on me. Heap the punishment on me. Send me to jail. Send me to Siberia. I accept it. I deserve it. I didn't commit the crime that you said I did, but I am guilty before God and therefore before you as well. Um, but on the other hand, there are times that he just gets really upset. Like, really? You're turning out my socks? Do you really have to go through my hat? Like, do you really have to take off my shirt? Like, why do you, do you expect me to do these things? They're demeaning. They are shameful. Dimitri expects honor. He expects respect. And notice that part of this is because he knows these people. Again, he was exchanging bawdy jokes with Nikolai Parfenovich just weeks ago. He, he used to call on Ippoli Kirillovich on a regular basis before all of this craziness has happened that forms the basis of this novel. On some level, the formality and the professionalism of Ippoli Kirillovich and of uh, Nikolai Parfenovich, as much as we take that for granted, as much as we have never seen these characters interact before and we just assume, you know, yeah, this is how cops treat regular people on the street, notice that Dmitri, these are his friends. He expects more from them. He expects to be treated like a human being. He expects to be treated like a friend. Not necessarily that he should be treated with any amount of, you know, of greater leniency or she should be let off the hook. Nothing like that. Dimitri does not expect them to not do their jobs, but he expects familiarity, understanding. He expects to be treated like their friend. He expects them to conduct themselves like his friend and stop harping on all of these pointless little questions. The fact that Nikolai Parfenovich sort of, you know, he's he has all these rings on him, and Dmitri sort of gets distracted at one point and asks him, like, hey, what's what's that stone in that one ring? And Nikolai Parfenovich, like, takes a step back, and he's like, do you want me to take it off and show it to you? Like, do you want to see it for yourself? And Dmitri's like, no, no, because he remembers, you know, this is not his place. This is not his position. As much as Dostoevsky is sort of showing us, on the one hand, you know, Dimitri's psychology as he's being accused, and as, you know, the psychology of the suspected innocent person, the psychology of a person who is accused of a crime that they did not commit. Notice that it's more complicated, more layered than that. Dostoevsky is also showing us Nikolai Parfenovich, who is now trying to accuse his friend of patricide, 
And for a moment, all of the barriers are sort of let down. Dmitri asks about his ring, and Nikolai Parfenovich is immediately inclined to just entrust it to him. Like, where was this in your police procedural? Some criminal is like, hey, can I look at that for a moment? They're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Like, there's a layer of formality about all of this that is very false, very inappropriate. Dostoevsky is a parlor room writer. He talks about these characters who they sit in each other's rooms and they talk back and forth and they are very polite to each other and they very carefully observe the niceties of social conventions at that time and when they transgress it, it's important and significant. What's significant about this scene is that this is already a transgression. That this is a parlor room scene, not an interrogation scene. And that the inspector are basically forgetting their responsibilities as hosts inasmuch as they have brought Dimitri to this point, they're asking him about these series of events, they're doing it in their professional capacity, and Dimitri is continuously asking, no, that's too far. You're intruding on my private affairs. You refuse to give me the dignity that I expect in this situation. And it's not clear, at least not clear to me, whether Dimitri is right or wrong in this situation. At the same time as I'm sitting here thinking, should we be reading this as a police procedural or should we not be reading this as a police procedural, is Dostoevsky interested in the suspense and the plot or is he not interested in all of these material evidences? On the same level, I'm sitting here thinking, are we supposed to look at Dimitri and see somebody who is wronged? Or are we supposed to look at Dimitri and see somebody who is refusing to admit to this very important situation? refusing to comply with the authorities. I think it's, again, a little bit of both. I think Dostoevsky is very much highlighting that we, at least here in Russia in 1880, are trapped between this very formalized, very professional, very European world, and on the other hand, the very informal world of Russian camaraderie. On some level, Dostoevsky is encouraging us to look at this not from the perspective of, you know, well, this is the way it's got to be done, this is how it's done everywhere, this is how it's done all the time, but rather to look at this as we are trying to impose a systematized formality on a situation that really doesn't warrant it and that isn't ready to accept it. This is a European, Europeanization of a Russian situation. Here is this man who may or may not have killed his father, admittedly the evidence is pretty damning, but he claims, he emphasizes, he stresses, I have not. I am guiltless. I will admit to all of the evidence out there that points to my guilt, but at the end of the day, no, I did not kill him. I walked away. I did, in fact, beat the servant, and I feel terrible about that, and I'm so glad to hear that he's all right. And yes, there is this wild cockamamie story about where I got this money from, that, in fact, I've been holding on to it this whole time. The only reason I wasn't willing to talk to you about it is because it had to do with my honor and my personal self-regard, and I think I'm a thief in front of myself now. This is Russian thinking. Dmitri is a Russian person, as Dostoevsky understands him. He is a Russian man, complete with all of those passions, untamed, uncontrollable, but relentlessly honest. And here comes this system that is totally alien, that is totally inconsequential and unremarkable to that Russian soul. 
And as much as Dmitri is repeatedly offended, but still submits, still acquiesces to this system, recognizes the necessity of it, I think Dostoevsky, at the end of the day, is questioning the system. Like, not just the sort of, oh, they're focusing on the material evidence, but no, talking about the very professionalism, the very system that is this system. I think Dostoevsky is questioning the fact that it's even appropriate in this situation. That honestly, if it were left up to Dostoevsky, you know, Nikolai Parfenovich and Ippoli Kirillovich would sit down with Dmitri over a samovar, and they would have a very civilized conversation about guilt or innocence, and then the two of them would part as friends with the recognition that, yeah, they have or have not committed a crime. That everyone would be honest in this situation. And part of the reason why I stress this, part of the reason why I think this might actually be behind what Dostoevsky is doing here, is you'll remember way, way back in the first couple of chapters, that discussion that was being had between Ivan and then that, uh, it was Ivan uh, Karamazov talking to Miusov about the ecclesiastical courts, and Father Pacey was getting involved, the monks were getting excited, and then the Elder Zosima started getting in and mentioned that convicts do not feel guilt to the state, but they do to the church. Notice that Dmitri is doing exactly that here. He is offended by Ippoli Kirillovich and by Nikolai Parfenovich specifically because, as far as Dmitri is concerned, they have no authority over him. They are not representatives of the Tsar. They are just men friends, people who should know better than to be asking him pointless, stupid questions about where did he get the needle and thread from? Like, who cares? You can get a needle and thread anywhere. What does it matter? Yes, there's nobody who is going to be able to testify, you know, make up an alibi to, yes, Dimitri had needle and thread. Everybody has needle and thread. It's a thing. No. But Dimitri does feel guilt before God. He is guilty before God because he threatened his father and felt violence towards his father. He is guilty before God because he beat Grigory and almost killed him, and he would have felt extremely guilty before God if, in fact, Grigory had died. And he definitely feels guilt before God for the theft. This scoundrelly act action that he has taken. This, you know, if I had gone to Katerina Ivanovna and begged forgiveness because I had squandered 3,000 rubles on a spree, that would be one thing. I would have been a spendthrift, but at least I would have had some honor. And if I had said to Katerina Ivanovna, here are your 1,500 rubles, I spent the rest on a spree, I would have still had honor there. At least I am giving you the money that I have. But now, because I kept the 1,500, I am a thief. That's what's important to Dostoevsky. That's what defines the Russian man. The fact that at the end of the day, yes, he felt horrible, terrible guilt. Absolutely is willing to admit that he is the worst person. He feels guilty before everyone. He apologizes to Krushenka for dragging her down. He apologizes to the two investigators for getting them mixed up in this. Like, he demands respect on the one hand as a human being and does not receive it because the system is already grinding him down because Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich are hiding behind the sort of skirts of the Tsar, refusing to admit their complicity in this system, while at the same time insisting that he behave himself like a man, that he take the blame for his actions, that he disgrace himself and take off his clothes and behave in this very demeaned way. It's not fair. And I think Dostoevsky is very insightful to point this out. And as much as 
all of our assumptions lead us to say, no, Dimitri should absolutely just suffer it, go through the system, because that's what we expect from each other, because this is so ingrained in us that this is just the normal way of doing affairs that it takes us a little bit to step back and say, whoa, no, actually. Dostoevsky is questioning this because it's new, because it isn't established, because this, these assumptions don't exist. Because when Dimitri is confronted by these people, he expects a conversation. And yes, he does expect a little bit of the sort of like, good cop, bad cop, these are the games you play, these are the tricks you're trying to... Like, he does in fact expect that. He knows that that's what's coming. But on the other hand, he is so offended when they do it. He's like, can't you be more honest with me? Can't we treat this affair as human beings? Now, obviously, if Dostoevsky is, in fact, criticizing the entire system of police, we would be right to sort of ask some questions here. You know, any contemporary thinker worth their salt in the 21st century would be like, well, if we do, in fact, get rid of the police force, doesn't that mean that criminals are just going to run rampant? Like, we can't very well just trust Dimitri to behave like an honorable person. He nearly did kill his father on at least one occasion. He's threatened it on multiple others. He nearly killed the servant. Like, why should we trust this man? Why should we let him go free? Why should anybody treat him like a human being at this point? Obviously, other criminals are in similar situations. Obviously, you know, we look at our world and we say there are so many liars and there's so many criminals and there are so many terrible people and so many people who lack even Dimitri's sense of honor. People who are willing to lie, cheat, and steal their way out of whatever bad situation they're in, no matter whether they're lying or cheating or feeling any guilt or remorse. If there are, in fact, these sociopaths and psychopaths who are willing to just lie under oath totally shamelessly without any conscience whatsoever, then obviously we need a police force to fight that. But I wonder if Dostoevsky isn't pointing to something even deeper. Dostoevsky isn't about to deny that there are, you know, terrible people in this world. He is well aware of that, and we have seen multiple terrible people. He has honestly been pretty merciless to Dimitri himself. Again, like, the fact that Dimitri actually realizes his guilt, realizes that he has done these horrible things to Grushenka, to his father, to his brothers, to, you know, everybody in town, that he is, in fact, guilty before all. Wait for it, we'll get there. This is important because he is. Remember Snegurov being dragged out, his family being destroyed, just in a fit of pique, as far as Dimitri is concerned? Obviously, Dostoevsky has no sort of illusions about what a terrible person and what terrible things Dimitri has done. But on the other hand, I suspect that Dostoevsky sees the degeneration of criminals into this class of, you know, again, honorless cheaters and thieves and murderers, people who are totally unwilling to go to prison, even if it means that they have to totally disgrace themselves, lie and hurt others and, you know, give away their, their, their last shred of morality, I think Dostoevsky would actually point to that and say, yeah, that didn't happen before the police. And I'm not sure whether he's right on there. Like, for sure, that's a fairly easy thing to claim. Obviously, there have been reprobates and terrible people throughout history. But it is an interesting question to sort of broach here. Does the systematic persecution of criminals 
in a formalized justice system, in a formalized penal system, in a formalized police system, necessitate that criminals respond in kind. And they too become, for lack of a better term, professional. That they too stop seeing this as a matter of personal morality, as a matter of guilt before God, and instead see this as, I do my job, I am in competition with the police, so all I need to do is lie and cheat and steal and kill and do all of that without being noticed. Because that's what matters. Because I don't have some deeper, more important set of morals, set of values to sort of check myself against. No, if the values that society offer are professional and striated and legal and all this very strict understanding of how the law is supposed to work, well, yeah, then all I have to do is break those in a way that can't be seen, and I've violated nothing. I have no reason not to do that. Why should I feel guilty before the Tsar? Why should I feel guilty before the policeman? Why should I feel guilty before the president? These are essentially human systems, and there is no binding underlying morality to violating those rules. I break the speed limit all the time and do not feel guilty about it because I think that that law is in place for rather silly reasons. Not to say that like we should all be able to drive as fast as we possibly can, but that we should be able to, to some degree, trust each other to know when it is okay to go really fast and know when it is okay not to. I tend to think that my judgment supersedes the value of the law in this place. And when I am in fact caught speeding, I am punished with a fine. I do not go to jail because this is not a felony, because on some level, the state agrees with me. Yeah, it's not a big deal. People speed all the time. Accidents suck, and we will punish you if you get into an accident, which is itself a matter of oops, circumstance, mistakes, as well as reckless driving or whatever else is going on. The morality that we believe in, the morality that I hold dear does not line up with the way the law works. It does for very few people. And Dostoevsky is kind of pointing to this here. He is very much stressing that if, in fact, we're going to impose a legalized morality, what we're going to get are people who don't take it seriously and who just as systematically reject it. This is where nihilists come from. I bet Dostoevsky would argue. Now, obviously, we've got more to talk about as far as that's concerned. The last couple of chapters of this book are going to be devoted to the actual trial, and we will see Dostoevsky sort of dealing with the Russian legal system very directly, both on the sort of social level, the, the personalities of the prosecutor and the defense attorney and all of these people and how sort of the you know trial brings out their character, as well as the sort of procedural, let's get all the evidence together, let's, you know, dramatically conclude this whole this whole story. But on some level he's going to be questioning it there as well. He's going to be saying that this is to some degree a farce, that it is artificial, that it is European and therefore wrong. Like, Dostoevsky has a very clear distinction between the European world that is sort of infiltrating Russia and the Russian truth at the core of who Russians are. And generally speaking, Dostoevsky in his political tracts, be it his praise of Slavophilism or his, you know, nationalism that we talked about not so long ago, 
or in his fiction, you will typically see him praising Russian honesty above European professionalism, European systems, European philosophy. People are true for Dostoevsky. Institutions never are. And in fact, it is the escalation of these institutions, these civilized moralities, that leads to progressively more uncivilized, both traditions and systems and morality. Now again, whether we can agree to that is another matter entirely. Obviously, left to their own devices, libertarians have done some really terrible people, or terrible things to people over the generations, and I expect that we need government to keep us in check regardless of what Dostoevsky has to say about its negative effects on the public and the populace. Nonetheless, this is where he's going as far as the social concerns are concerned. It's pretty hard to read this any other way. He is very critical of the artificiality here. And through Mitya, while Mitya is not the most reliable sort of perspective to take on this subject, I think Dostoevsky is venting his frustrations against this system. Dostoevsky constantly reminds us, both in Crime and Punishment and here in The Brothers Karamazov, that guilt does not mean the same thing as dehumanization. Whether or not Dmitri is innocent doesn't change the fact that Dmitri is a person, and that he therefore warrants compassion and dignity. Whether or not we throw out a penal system, or the police, or the court system, or whatever, we need to recognize that Dostoevsky is at the very least arguing for reform on the level of treating people like people, no matter what they have done or what they have supposed to have been done. Dmitri is a person. He walks out of his interrogation with dignity. And in fact, Dostoevsky notes, even draws attention to, the people who immediately, because of his crime, stop treating him like a human being. Be it Trifon Borisic, the innkeeper who is perfectly willing to accept all of, the, of Dimitri's money and even lies to the prosecutor. He emphasizes, you know, it was those gypsies that took all of his money. They must have given him at least, or they must, he must have given them at least a thousand rubles all by himself, probably to cover up the fact that, as we know from the narrator, he was pocketing that money on the sly and the gypsies had nothing to do with it. On the other hand, we also see Mavriki Mavrikievich, who is just this random court official basically serving as a cop in this situation, and he gets really sort of surly with Dimitri. Like, Dimitri's like, why don't you just pile into the same coach? Because, you know, I'm not going to run anywhere. And this guy's like, no, we need two coaches. And he's, like, trying to hire this other guy, and he's trying to get the other coach, and it's this whole thing. And then finally it does, in fact, fall through, and Mavriki Mavrikievich is, like, pushing Dimitri around in the carriage. Like, Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing here, yeah, make this as professional as you want. Make this as systematic as you want. Make this as legal and, you know, striated as you possibly can. Turn it into mechanism. But it will still be humans at the end of the day, and they will still overstep themselves. They will still screw up and dishonor themselves and others. Dostoevsky is very keen to point out to us, presumably from his own experiences, that a convict, guilty or innocent, is treated like crap. He is no longer a human being in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of many of the people who will interact with him. He is marked, like the mark of Cain. 
and people are not going to treat him as a human being as a consequence. And that sucks. That's not what it's supposed to do. This is not in the law. It is not part of the philosophy that led up to the law. In theory, yes, this is all judicious, and this is all supposedly, you know, above board, and it's all very enlightened, and it's, you know, yes, we're going to punish people, but we're not going to, like, take away their human dignity. But in the end of the day, practically speaking, be it in the prison or amongst the police or amongst the people who see convicts come out and about, they're going to be treated like that. Dostoevsky knows. He was there. He was treated like that. He was frequently disgraced and dishonored for his situation. Things that he had supposedly been cleared of, repented of, done the time for. He should be a contributing member of society at this point and is not allowed to. For years, he wasn't even allowed to publish after the Petrushevsky incident. Why? Was there a good reason for it? Or was it just because we inherently dehumanize people who commit crimes? Because the system that we are built in, whether tacitly or intentionally, encourages us to dehumanize those people, to see them as less than we are. I think Dostoevsky is very keenly noticing that. That's, again, the social dimension to this whole novel of crime and murder and violence. Dostoevsky is pointing out the way that this system works, actually, and not the way it's supposed to work theoretically. Ivan may have all of his philosophy, all of those, you know, Fourierists and utopians and French thinkers imported into Russia may have had brilliant rational ideas, but do they really apply at all when brought to human beings in a human situation? We can't just consider it from a pure enlightenment, pure reason standpoint. Dostoevsky remains a romantic in that respect. He is equally hostile to the enlightenment thinkers who insist that rationality can be perpetrated without the human nature infiltrating it, and he is also hostile to those who believe that we need to do away with human nature entirely. For Dostoevsky, human nature will always be a part of the equation. You cannot just drum it out. And for Dostoevsky, it's the best part. It, why would you drum it out? Which brings us to the third way that we need to sort of recognize and interpret this section. We need to see the themes. Notice everything that we said from our chapter about the Elder Zosima and his talks and his homilies and, you know, that Bible verse that is very much sort of central to understanding this book. Only if a sheaf of, or a corn of wheat fall to the ground will it produce fruit. We need to recognize that Dimitri is going through this process in this section. Just as Alyosha did a couple of weeks ago when we talked about his big change, how he had been you know, hurt by the way that Elder Zosimo was perceived and then repented of his anger towards everyone and ultimately was given that glimpse of the goodness of the universe, so does Dimitri go through the same process now. And notice the first three chapters of the actual interrogation are called the Three Torments. This refers to a tradition in Orthodox Russian Christianity where when a soul is on its way up to, up to heaven, it is tempted by evil spirits who, who try to sort of like trick it into staying on earth and, and screwing up and, and forfeiting its, its right to go to heaven. Notice that Dmitri is tempted three times by these three torments. 
first of all, he is accused. And he immediately says, you know, I am not guilty. I, I did, in fact, kill Grigory, and, you know, this is terrible, and I, I feel bad about this, but it turns out that he's not dead. Um, but I did not kill my father. He is tempted here to sort of despair, to rage, to anger, and he resists this. He accepts that he is, in fact, on trial, that he is going to have to defend himself. In the second torment, we get all of the evidences. This is where they keep asking him, you know, where where did you get all of this stuff? How did how where did the money come from? You know, how did like how much money did you in fact spend? How how did all of these very specific things happen? And Dmitri accepts this as well. Like as much as he does want to get angry, as much as he wants to scream and shout, like this is undignified. This is beneath my station. You know, I don't have to tell you this stuff and. What's more, in the second torment, he very much stresses, I'm not going to tell you where I got the money from. Because, again, it would reveal how much of a scoundrel I actually am. I would rather go to a penal colony, he says, than suffer that information to come to light. In the third torment, they present him with the alternative, namely that Smerdyakov killed him. Notice, like, this is a particularly important moment on, four, on page 476. Um... Like, he is, he has basically said, no, I did not kill my father, and they ask him out the open door, and they're like, well, who did kill your father? And he, like, he literally says, in that case, the devil killed my father. But at the same time, up to that moment, he had been asking himself, was it Smerdyakov, or was it not Smerdyakov? He is asking himself this question. Smerdyakov seems like the logical person to have done it, seeing as Dmitri knows he has not. And yet, he refuses. He refuses to immediately go on the offensive, to accuse. So here we have, over and over, Dmitri demonstrating his restraint, his patience, not giving in to that hot-blooded anger that he's experienced all of this time, letting the investigators go about their business. Much as he is impatient with them, much as he does get annoyed, much as he does sort of uh, appeal to their nobility, appear, appeal to their friendship, he recognizes, yeah, this is, in fact, the situation that he has found himself in, and he does, in fact, deserve it. He is guilty, and he recognizes his guilt, which, of course, is the first step that Dostoevsky stresses in what we've talked about with Elder Zosima. You have to be guilty before everyone. And when you are guilty before everyone, when you recognize that guilt and affirm that guilt, then and only then can you begin to repent. And notice that Dmitri's entire arc to this point, his entire situation, is predicated on this. He was absolutely living in sin. He was in this contest with his father about Grushenka, and he was threatening his father, and he was completely out of control, and he was just driven nearly to madness, apparently by the fact that he was holding on to this money and was constantly troubled, like, am I a thief, am I not a thief? Um... Finally, when he does in fact release the purse strings, remember, like, this is after he thinks he's killed Grigory, after he has, you know, given up on his sort of, like, piety about himself and admitted, yes, I am a thief, so I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go see Grushenka, then I'm going to kill myself in the morning. And then everything turns around for him. He's rescued. He's saved. This deus ex machina, out of the blue, Grushenka leaves the Polish officer and wants to be with Dmitri. He has this new lease on life. Everything is finally turning around, and he realizes, actually, no, I am trapped. I can't have that life because I killed Grigory, because I am still a thief, because I have disgraced myself. 
And that, at that moment, that's when the investigators show up. And Dimitri has to confront his new awareness. Rather than try and weasel his way out of the situation, rather than, you know, get impatient with these prosecutors and sort of set them on the wrong trail, or for that matter, to lie to them, which would be so easy. They have so little information. And yet every time Dimitri tells them the truth, he forgives them and goes on with his testimony. He allows them to commit these indignities on him. He doesn't push back. He recognizes his guilt, and his repentance remains true, even when it would be so easy to just take the life that he has just won with Grushenka, and not at all submit to the actual justice at stake here. He admits his guilt, he repents, and he sacrifices, and hopes that in doing so, he will in fact be able to enjoy the life that is now available to him. And notice that Grushenka gives it to him. That Grushenka promises him that she'll go to the ends of the earth for him, that he'll, she'll go to Siberia for him, that they will in fact enjoy their life together even if it is in prison. Dimitri does in fact repent here. Does in fact, through this process, purge himself of all of his sin. He is interrogated here as we would expect at the last judgment. And while the judgment itself is not forthcoming, again, there is a trial, that will be in another few chapters, notice that the process is very much the same as the one that Elder Zosima talked about, the one that Alyosha himself has gone through, and the one that is described in that biblical passage. Dimitri, in order to enjoy his life, in order to enjoy the fruit of this world, in order to be a blessed, good person, he has to first die, to submit, to be sacrificed. And on some level, it's clear that he knows this. And the fact that he does get into the carriage with the dignity that he does, the fact that Ippoli Kirillovich and Nikolai Parfenovich both do compliment him, thank him, admire his nobility of character, even as they believe that he is guilty. Like, notice Kalganov's response. The Kalganov, like, watches them all get into the car and drive away, and Kalganov himself has testified against Dmitri, but tried to like mitigate it as much as possible, and Kalganov is still sitting at the end, and he weeps as the last lines of this section. He Notice what Dostoevsky says about him. Kalganov ran back into the front hall, sat down in the corner, bent his head, covered his face with his hands, and began to cry. He sat like that and cried for a long time, cried as though he were still a little boy and not a man of twenty. Oh, he believed almost completely in Mitya's guilt. What are these people? What sort of people can there be after this? He kept exclaiming incoherently, in bitter dejection, almost in despair. At that moment, he did not even want to live in the world. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? The grieved young man kept exclaiming. Notice, Kalganov has not shown any sign of this kind of repentance or this kind of guilt in the past. It's upon seeing Dmitri die in this way. See Dmitri accept the responsibility even for the crime that he did not commit. Kalganov doesn't need to know whether Mitya did or did not kill his father. It is irrelevant to Kalganov, just as to some degree it is irrelevant to Dostoevsky. And it should be irrelevant to us. Dmitri turns himself in 
Dimitri accepts his fate. Dimitri acknowledges his guilt. And at that point, at least as far as Christianity is concerned, the actual crime doesn't matter anymore. He has repented. He is now saved. And therefore can do good, can in fact bring about this new fruit. It is important that if he in fact had committed the crime that he repented it, for sure. Like, obviously this only goes for Dimitri, you know, Dimitri's friends sort of looking on his life and trying to sort of wrap their head around what has happened. For Dimitri himself, it's a different battle. But nonetheless, because he gave himself, he does walk out of this scene more Christ-like for his guilt than he would if he had somehow gotten off, somehow claimed innocence and successfully, you know, had a happily ever after ending with Grushenka. This was necessary. This is the beginning of Dmitri's life, not the end. And Dostoevsky definitely wants to drive that point home, as we'll see a little bit later. But for next week, we're turning our attention in a rather unexpected direction. We are returning to Alyosha, and especially to Snegirov and all of those boys who we were palling around with and potentially throwing rocks at earlier on in the novel. It's time to return to our strangest sort of tangent in this novel and see exactly what Dostoevsky is doing and why somehow here at this point of incredible plot tension and climax we are still going to hang around with a bunch of young kids. So for next week, we will read Book 10, Boys. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.